Hi, Jamie. How are you? Good uh, oh, morning for you then, Katerina. Um, I am well and a little bit excited, and you will find out why when I get a chance to speak to our current guest speaker. <laughs> Good. Because, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it as a surprise. Um, how are you this morning? Good, good. Oh, and our uh, introduction onboarding meeting uh, got rescheduled to Monday at this time. So I noticed <laughs> and I am grateful. Thank you. Oh, that's good. <clears throat> Excellent. Was that, did they get confirmation back then? Yep. Okay. Awesome. 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 Very good. Do, 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 do. Uh, it's uh, it's 9am for you. You must be having your breakfast coffee, are you? Yep, <laughs> exactly. Got <laughs> <laughs> uh, that done. Let's... <clears throat> Um, I, okay, I'm going to send you something, Katarina. Okay. And I, I want, I want I'll, I'll do it through, oh, okay, I'm going to send you this. Hi, Serena. Hello, hey. Serena. Hi. Hello. Diljeet. Um, Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Let me practice your name again. Um, could you say your first name and last name again? Sorry. No worries. Yeah, my first name is Diljeet and my surname is Gil. Okay, perfect. Thank you. No problem. Pleasure to meet you, Dr. Gil. Thank you. Nice to meet you too. <laughs> yeah, also meet... I have... Yeah, so... go ahead. Sorry. No, please, please, Catherine, go. Yeah, also meet Serena and Jamie. You know, they are like the moderators here too from our club. So, um, awesome. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you. I'm still waking up. So, coffee in hand, but this will be, <laughs> this will be great. Slept late last night. <laughs> Also, the time difference. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> it's two o'clock in the afternoon here, but it's nine o'clock for you guys, isn't it? Yeah, I'm in Orlando. Yeah. I am with you though in Scotland, so we're in the same time zone. Okay. Well, you're, you're not in Scotland, but you're in the UK. Yep, yep. <laughs> cool. So we can band together against these lightweights that are all just <laughs> having their morning coffee. <laughs> How's your day been so far, Doctor? Yeah, it's been good. Um, been working on some computational analysis at the moment. So yeah, a lot of coding and things like that. Oh, no, I don't get I want to ask you questions about that now. We've got, I already got a topic going, so <laughs> Hopefully we'll go in that direction towards the end of the talk anyways, because it is followed. I'm still working on very much the same stuff. Uh, just kind of the next kind of logical steps. So yeah, hopefully the dis discussion will go that way. Excellent. Could easily get into the weeds depending on what language you're coding in, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which are you coding in? 
So I use a mixture of Python and R. Um, I don't really have like a preference for either. I just, yeah, I try to use R very good for statistics, isn't it? Mm -mm. I do like it for plotting things as well. I think it's nice, easier to make graphs, for example. Um, but Python's very good for machine learning. Mm -hmm. I tend to write in C++ still a lot, although Python's okay. I have not learned C++. My goal is to learn as many coding languages as possible. Um, so that is on the to-do list at some point. Yeah, it's um, careful what you wish for with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd probably find it cumbersome being coming from Python. Because mm -hmm. Python's much more of a, a you know, higher level scripting language where you can get away with all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, well, so we're going to rejuvenate ourselves today, huh? <laughs> yes, we'll be talking about, yes, rejuvenation of human cells. Such I was tempted to ask you if you brought any free samples. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are some in the freezer. <laughs> but I don't know if uh, Katarina and Serena like have rejuvenation portions before their coffee in the morning or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, rejuvenation at any time, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Especially before the summer, right? Yeah. Oh, we can we can we can make up for too much UV light. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Hi Gilbert, how are you? Hello everybody, how's it going? Hi Gilbert. So um yeah, we'll start. Yeah, oh it's already nine. Okay. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and start, I guess. So, um, welcome everyone uh, to the Science Society <clears throat> and uh, special thanks to um, Dr. Um, Gil. He um, is our guest speaker here today and let me uh, introduce you a little bit, uh, give you some information. So, um, he did his undergrad a degree in biomedical sciences at Newcastle University. Um, and after that, he joined the RIG group at the Braham Institute for his PhD. And there he developed a novel transient reprogramming approach called maturation phase transient reprogramming. And he uh, was awarded his uh, PhD in biological sciences from the University of Cambridge. And um, he now is interested in understanding how the epigenome changes as we age and how these changes are reversed during um, IPSC programming. In particular, um, his current research focuses on transient reprogramming approaches which promote rejuvenation whilst maintaining original cell identity. Yeah, and uh, you can see the paper on the top, um, pinned on the top of the room. 
But before we uh, go into your presentation, uh, we usually ask our uh, speakers like a couple of more general questions about you as a scientist. So, um, Jamie, the stage is yours. Thank you very much, Katerina. And thank you very much again on behalf of Science Society for joining us here today, Dr. Gill. Um, what's the, one of the first things we ask is to give everybody a nice good background of you is to ask, what first fascinated you about science and got you into science and made you feel that this was your calling in life at any point of time and space? Whatever you've got to share, we're here to listen. Cool. So yeah, I think my interest in science really did stem from kind of secondary school onwards. I've always been really kind of inquisitive into how things work and particularly how the human body works. And that was quite a broad interest in high school, but going into university in particular, we had the option to pick particular modules and this kind of flexibility and kind of tailoring what we were interested in. And one of the modules that was available was the biology of aging. And to me, this is something that I had no Kind of prior knowledge about and I was very curious to learn more about it and having going having done that module I learned about the kind of theories of aging some of the mechanisms that were starting to be shed light on and I was just fascinated something that seemed like science fiction was actually starting to become a true field of science with some really tangible results and the idea that we could actually manipulate the aging process to make our to help us live healthier for longer was starting to become a reality. And that's really where my interest in aging research really started. And I was very fortunate to get a position for a PhD where I was able to do that as a PhD project. That is incredible. So right out of the gate, um, where you are right now is exactly um, where you were focused on from the very beginning? I would say so, yeah. It's been quite a kind of right place at the right time. and. I think the kind of searches I, I did when I was looking for PhD programs in particular, there were groups that were very much offering what I was interested in doing. I think the kind of the field of aging and epigenetics and aging was quite new at the time. So uh, a lot of projects were starting to begin and I think it was a, a very good time. And even now is a really good time to get into aging research with so many groups now starting to look at um, kind of linking what they're working on in the aging sphere. Cause it turns out that aging being so multifaceted can be linked to even things like development. So yeah, very, very exciting time to be, or to even start in the aging research field. That's fascinating. Normally we would ask you um, what led you up to the particular topic for today, but since you've already covered that, I'm going to actually ask you this instead. What was the actual, out of all the stuff you've discovered in your research so far, what's the most interesting thing you've found that's really sparked your curiosity more than anything else so far? I think for me, the fact that we can turn back the clock in human cells by such a large amount, uh, the work that we've done suggests that these cells can be 30 years younger than what they started off as. And to me, that is still kind of a fascinating amount and still a little bit of science fiction, to be honest. We don't know the mechanisms behind it, but it, that curiosity is driving me forwards and I'm excited to keep on working in this space. Well, we're very much excited to actually hear it. So when you're ready with your talk, Doctor, we are listening. Thank you awesome. very much. Awesome. So yeah, I will kind of walk you through the paper, but hopefully you should be able to get the story even without the figures. Um, so just to give a bit of background, our work was very much interested in understanding, to begin with, how does our 
DNA change as we age. So for those of you not familiar with epigenetics, our DNA is covered in a variety of modifications that do not affect the sequence of the DNA, but help to regulate which parts are active and which parts are inactive. And together, these are known as the epigenome. And an example of an epigenetic mark is DNA methylation. This is a mark that's typically added to the, the C's in our DNA sequence. And this mark typically makes that part of the DNA inactive. As we get older, this modification changes um, in terms of its pattern. So parts of our DNA loses, loses this mark and parts of this, our DNA gain this mark. And these changes can be quite reproducible to the point you could treat them like a clock. And researchers have developed tools that enable you to predict how old someone is by looking at their pattern of DNA methylation. So effectively, it's a way of kind of getting an, an inside view of how someone is aging. What's really fascinating is this clock correlates really well with kind of true or biological age. So if you live a really healthy lifestyle, so exercising well, eating a healthy diet, your age being predicted by these clocks tends to be lower than your chronological age. Uh, and vice versa, if you're potentially uh, uh, living an unhealthy lifestyle, your age will be predicted to be higher than your actual age. So it really seems to pick up the kind of the actual aging process quite well. And fascinatingly, this clock can be reset all the way back to zero years old using a process called IPSC reprogramming. This is the technique that was discovered in 2006, and it's the ability to turn any cell in our body back into a stem cell. And this requires four reprogramming factors, uh, the reprogramming genes, also known as the Yamanak effectors. And when you introduce these factors into cells, they will go back to become, they will go back to stem cell state. Amazingly, this reduces the age, and this in itself represents a really amazing prospect for rejuvenation. The fact that we can turn back age all the way to zero just by introducing factors into cells. But this does come with several caveats. You lose your original cell type, and this is a kind of a major caveat because you'd lose all the functions that cell once had. So for example, a skin cell turned back to a stem cell would no longer be able to kind of help maintain the, the skin around it. It wouldn't be able to secrete the proteins required and it wouldn't be able to help in wound healing processes. So if we could somehow rejuvenate cells but keep the cell type, that would be the, the perfect, perfect goal. So to begin with our project, we actually had a look at how age changes during the reprogramming process. So that is, for those of you following in the paper, figure 1a. So reprogramming is quite a long process. It takes about 50 days. And when we profiled age using these epigenetic clocks, we found that the age actually reduces much earlier than the full 50 days. At around kind of day 10 to 17, that's when the most of the age is actually rejuvenated. And this is exciting because it suggests we don't actually have to do full reprogramming to re rejuvenate a cell. So going from that, we decided to design a new method which would harness the power of reprogramming, but able, enable us to keep the starting cell type. And that is our kind of transient reprogramming approach strategy. That leads us nicely into figure 1b, which shows our experimental outline. So we start for cells from uh, middle-aged individuals, so people who are about 50 years old. We take the fibroblast cells from the dermis and we introduce the reprogramming genes using a, a, a virus construct. This construct is designed in a way that the genes are inducible, so we can turn them on and off at will, which is really helpful for doing a transient approach. 
We then turn on these reprogramming genes for different lengths of time. So we chose 10, 13, 15 or 17 days. And then after this induction of the reprogramming genes, we have a kind of reprogramming population of cells. So reprogramming isn't 100% efficiency. Some cells will reprogram, some cells will not reprogram. So we end up with some cells that have started to reprogram and these can be sorted based on the markers they show on their surface. And these can be separated from the cells that are failing to reprogram. We can then grow the cells without the reprogramming genes. So we switch the reprogramming genes off. And after a period of about four to five weeks, the cells will actually resemble the starting cell type once again. And that is the entire transient reprogramming process. We also do characterize the cells that didn't manage to reprogram. So they didn't have the markers for successful reprogramming. And these are classed failing to transient reprogram. And there's also a negative control line, which is grown for the same amount of time, but without reprogramming genes at all. So this is a really cool process. These cells seem to kind of temporarily change their cell type, but they regain the starting cell type once the process is completed. And we've done a little bit of quantification of that. So for, for those following in the paper, 1D is a, a look at this numerically, where we kind of look at the roundness of cells and cells that are undergoing this process temporarily become much rounder, and then they return to that elongated fibroblast shape once the process is completed. So we were really interested to see if this actually is reflected in the other uh, characteristics of these cells. So yes, they may look like the fibroblast cells they once were, but do the genes they express and does the epigenome resemble the fibroblast cell or have they actually become a bit more like a stem cell? So we compared these samples to cells undergoing normal, complete iPSC reprogramming. And these are figures 1E and 1G. So this, the, the points colored in light blue to dark blue, the cells that are undergoing complete reprogramming, and these separate nicely to form a trajectory. So you've got cells going from the non-repro, the starting cell type to the iPSC stage, um, going from left to right. The cells that underwent transient reprogramming at the intermediate step, so once you've done the induction of the reprogramming genes, these start to become a little bit stem cell-like, so they move towards the iPSC cells in the reference. But once you take away the reprogramming genes, they return back to the start. And this is reflected in both the transcriptome, so which genes they're using, as well as in the epigenome, when we look at the DNA methylation positions. So that's really cool. These cells have regained and are now back to being the starting cell type after undergoing this procedure, both in their morphology, their, their, what genes they're using, and also their epigenome. We have profiled a little bit what is actually the mechanisms behind this. So this kind of memory that enables the cells to go back is something that we were really fascinated by. And that is uh, something we explored in figure two in our paper. So if we, the way we went in to address this question was to think about what could be conferring memory, what would allow cells to kind of temporarily change and then return back to the starting cell type. And so we looked at the, cell, the genes that were specific to that cell type. So that is figure 2b for those of you following in the paper. So these fibroblast specific genes, if we look at how they change during um, transient reprogramming as well as in iPSCs, we can see this split into three groups. So these genes, a large proportion of them are down-regulated or switched off. 
But there are two other groups of genes that are either maintained in their expression, so they're kind of staying on throughout the entire procedure, or they kind of, some of them even go up a little bit in how much they're being used. So these two categories are really interesting because these are fibroblast specific genes and they could be conferring memory in the form of transcriptional persistence. But there is another mechanism that could be at play as well, and that is in the epigenome. So even for these genes that are temporarily being switched off, could it be that they are still primed to reactivate? And so we had a look at the regulatory elements associated with these genes and had a look at the epigenome was still in an active kind of confirmation or had it switched into an inactive confirmation. So that is figure 2D. So enhancers are important regulatory elements that help genes switch on at the correct times. And we looked at fibroblast-specific enhancers. So these are, these are enhancers that are active in fibroblast cells. As you can see in the figure, in iPSCs, uh, these are really highly methylated. So these are switched off by the methylation. But during transient reprogramming, these enhancers stay lowly methylated throughout the entire procedure. So these enhancers remaining lowly methylated could be conferring memory through an epigenetic mechanism instead. So even though the genes are being downregulated and the enhancers are still in an active state, so when the reprogramming factors are taken away, they can, be, they can kind of bounce back and enable the genes to switch on again. So that gives us effectively kind of two mechanisms at play. And that is now moving on to kind of figure 2E, which is a kind of a summary of what I've just described. So as examples, uh, the gene MMP1 uh, is a gene that reflects potentially epigenetic memory. So this gene is temporarily switched off during transient reprogramming, but its enhancer remains slowly methylated. So this would be enabling the cells to kind of bounce back and turn on that gene once the reprogramming factors are taken away. Another, the alternative case is the transcriptional persistence theory, and that is maybe reflected by a collagen 1A2. So this gene is, maintains a very high level of expression throughout the entire transient reprogramming process. So it could be conferring memory by basically keeping some of the fibroblast characteristics on all the time. Um, so yeah, both of these are kind of hypotheses at the moment, but something we're very interested in kind of following up on in the future is how do these cells remember and which of these two mechanisms is actually more important. And yeah, that's something that we'll be looking at in the future, so watch this space. So moving on to figure three. So we've now, just to kind of quickly summarize, we've shown that cells can temporarily change their cell type, but reacquire it. And we've had a look at the mechanisms at play that might be responsible. But the big question now was, Yes, they're back to being the starting cell type, but are they the same age starting cell type or are they a more youthful version of that cell type? And so we had a look at how, first of all, their gene expression patterns change. Are the genes that are using more reflective of a young fibroblast or more reflective of a middle-aged fibroblast? So we've done this in quite a few different ways. Uh, one thing to note with kind of aging research is it is important to look at aging in a kind of multifaceted way using multiple approaches and seeing if we get concordance between the different approaches. So the first approach we did was looking at the kind of samples and comparing it to a reference aging data set. So that is figure 3a. So 
the points in light blue to dark blue are the young to old reference fibroblasts. And they separate really nicely going from old on the right, uh, sorry, old on the left to young on the right. And if we have a look at the samples in our experiment, the cells that underwent transient reprogramming are closer to the right, so towards the youthful side, than the negative control. So this is already giving us a kind of preliminary indication that the genes they're using reflect a more youthful state than if they hadn't undergone the procedure. If we kind of quantify that, so that's going on to figure 3b, um, this may suggest the cells are potentially 40 years younger than what they started off as. But this is quite large error bars, so we actually went to a potentially more accurate method of age quantification, which is a transcription clock. So I mentioned before that DNA methylation and the epigenome can be used to predict age using these, these uh, epigenetic clocks. Um, a similar thing can be actually applied to the, the transcriptome and what genes are being used. So these are called transcription clocks. Um, and effectively, the, the same principles apply. Uh, with age, certain genes will become switched on, certain genes will become switched off. And these patterns can be quite reproducible to the point where you can predict how old someone is based on the pattern of the genes being used. And so we applied a transcription clock to the samples after transient reprogramming. And what we saw was that, again, these samples after transient reprogramming appeared to be substantially younger than the negative control samples. And in this case, they seem to be kind of 30 to 40 years younger. Interestingly, um, kind of 10 or 13 days of transient reprogramming was the kind of optimal amount. And 15 or 17 was actually maybe too much reprogramming and that actually led to less rejuvenation. So the thing with clocks is these usually look at a subset of genes. So this doesn't reflect every single gene in our, in our genome. So we actually had a look at how the whole transcriptome changes with aging and that is figure 3D. So this is comparing how genes look uh, before in transient reprogramming cells compared to negative control cells and color coding them by their expression change with age. So genes that are more red are genes that would go up with age and genes that are blue are genes that would go down with age. And basically transient reprogramming does a reversal of aging changes. So genes that go up with transient reprogramming are ones that would go down with age and genes that go down with transient reprogramming are ones that go up with age. So effectively the whole transcriptome is being rejuvenated by this intervention, which is really, 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 really cool. This is something that we then wanted to kind of move into a more functional territory. And so we had a look at some of this, the genes that are very critical to fibroblast function. So these cells are found in the skin and they have a role in secreting collagen, which forms part of the matrix that surrounds the cells and helps to maintain the structural integrity of the skin. So we had a look at how collagen changes with age and how it changes the transient reprogramming. And we saw that some of the collagen genes do go down in their expression with age and transient reprogramming was able to increase the levels and kind of restoring them to a more youthful level. So that is figure 3E. We then had a look at not just the RNA level, but the actual protein level. So just to kind of fully make sure that this is actually leading to a protein increase, which would actually lead to a functional improvement. And so in figure 3F, we quantify this by using immunofluorescence. So this is a technique where you label the proteins using antibodies that are labeled with a fluorescent tag, and you can then quantify this using imaging techniques. And what we saw was again, similar to the RNA, 
uh, we saw that there was an increase in protein, which is very, 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 very cool. And it suggests that this is a functional improvement to the cells. Another function that these cells have is they play a key role in the wound healing process. So we had a look at their migration speed using an in vitro wound healing assay. So effectively you kind of create a cut in a dish and see how the cells kind of move to fill in the gap. We saw that with age, there was a reduction in speed, but with transient probing, there was like a partial increase, but it was very heterogeneous. So that's something we're still working on. Finally, to move on to figure four, we then started to profile the epigenome. So just to make sure that all the layers of a cell are being improved by transient reprogramming. So there are a lot of epigenetic modifications that change with age. So I, I mentioned DNA methylation before, but another modification is actually to do with the histones. So the DNA is packaged around proteins called histones and that helps to kind of compact the DNA, but also helps to kind of regulate the DNA and what parts are used. And a modification called H3K9 trimethylation is another repressive mark, so it makes DNA inactive. With age, this mark kind of goes down globally. So the levels across the entire um, the nucleus or the entire DNA um, go down. With transient reprogramming, the levels can be partially restored, and that's figure 4A. We also had a look at epigenetic clocks, um, and these show a rejuvenation as well. So that is figure 4B. And we see there is a rejuvenation of about 30 years. Um, interestingly, there is a kind of optimal amount of time. So 13 days of transient reprogramming is the optimal in this scenario. Uh, and this somewhat mirrors the transcription clock results where doing too much actually led to a less rejuvenation. So there seems to be a kind of a sweet spot where doing just enough reprogramming leads to the best outcome. Not everything is rejuvenated though. And that's an important thing to highlight and something that may, be need, may need to be addressed in the future. So for example, telomeres are the kind of end structures of our chromosomes. And with age, these uh, tend to become shorter. And this is a problem because when these become too short, that can lead to cells stopping their kind of dividing processes. Uh, with transient reprogramming, these telomeres are unaffected. They're not elongated. So that is potentially a negative of our protocol or may need to be addressed in the future. And yeah, finally, um, I'll just move on to figure 4F for the sake of time so we can have some questions. Uh, we had a look at the overlap in epigenetic rejuvenation and transcription rejuvenation. And we did see a small overlap where some of the genes and some of the sites were very close to each other, which could suggest that the mechanisms that regulate one and rejuvenate one may also rejuvenate the other. And this could be shedding some light that there is a kind of single mechanism that rejuvenates both of these layers. And with that, I think that is a, a quick rundown of the entire paper and I'd love to open it up to discussion and questions. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Thank you so much. This was, this is such an amazing work. Like um, 30 years is, is quite something Thank you. And the, fact that you yeah, and the fact that you also looked at collagen is really interesting because, you know, I think until now people always said, yeah, what about the collagen? We cannot do anything about the collagen. So it's really great that you also looking into that. Um, yeah, I want to first ask if people have questions, please flash your microphones, raise your hands uh, before, you know, I hog the stage and, and ask away. 
I have so, so, so many, but I want to let the audience uh, all ask first. Thank you, Doctor. Well, so, yeah, fascinating work. And it's, it really is amazing that, you know, that there, there is so much control here. Um, in terms of, um, so, so is the picture, and, and I'm trying to think, trying to, you know, reason, <clears throat> excuse me, reason through how this, you know, how this does work. So we have methylation patterns correlated with age, and the factors are, in essence, um, demethylation, demethylating those, those key sites. Is there um, an understanding or, or thinking that the uh, the level of, of methylation is exposing, I mean, are, are we into quaternary and tertiary structure of the chromosomes in the sense that as we increasingly make them more uh, methylate or more hydrophobic, the folding or the exposure is what's um, driving the access or less access of, of genes throughout the chromosomes. And in essence, are we reversing that by um, taking away the methylation to an earlier time where the structure exposes those genes more readily and that increases the rates of, you know, say the collagen or whatever the genes are? Is, is there some understanding there that um, mm -hmm. kinetics is coupled through structure? So, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And DNA methylation with it being repressive does lead to yeah, structural changes in the DNA, as you mentioned. So that will lead to it potentially becoming more compacted, less accessible. Um, one thing to note with ages is there's a combination of changes. There is both um, loss of methylation and gain of methylation, but in different locations. So that could lead to, for example, inappropriate accessibility gained where you lose that modification and inappropriate kind of compacting where you gain it. Um, and yeah, that could definitely lead to changes in expression. Uh, linking them can be quite difficult because these changes might not be necessarily right next to the gene. If these changes occur at regulatory elements, these can also impact genes that are much further away. So for example, an enhancer could become demethylated and this might interact in 3D space with a gene that's maybe very far away, but this they would have an impact. But then linking that can be something that's quite tricky. But it's something that yeah, we are hoping to do in the future, like actually linking these methylation changes to expression data and really trying to get a, a key glimpse at what is the kind of the mechanism or the, the steps unfolding. And to add to the complexity, um, methylation also interacts with other epigenetic modifications. So as I mentioned, the histones that the DNA is wrapped around also change their modifications with age and methylation can interact with and potentially block or recruit different modifications. So it's, yeah, a, a, quite a complicated picture. And I think in the future, we'll have to do multi-omic profiling. So looking at all the modifications together at the same time, and that will help us to work out which affects what and in what order. Well, thank you. Oh, and just one quick question. Are you looking for volunteers on the collagen study? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be in <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> no problem. Can I start asking now, please, Katharina? Yes, Jamie, go ahead, please. Okay, Dr. Gill, 
that was amazing that talk that is so so exciting Thank you. Work, working on um i was writing down a whole bunch of questions for you here awesome so so first of all um i was wondering um okay let me just get my question list here right when you in the paper when you spoke of separating separating rejuvenation from complete pluripotency pro, uh, programming mm-hmm. um is that what you were talking about near the beginning about checking um the the cells reverting to a position that you know didn't have any of the you know the, the memory essentially of what they were before is that what you were talking about um partly so yeah we want to see how much we can disentangle the two so yeah if we can reprogram but keep the same cell type that suggests we can separate the two to a certain extent um does that answer your question hopefully it, it does but, but what i was this is me giving a very layman's idea of trying to picture it what it, what it is you're um, talking about separating and all i can think of it is this kind of sci-fi example where i've seen it you know how you watch on tv if someone could be made young again um, it doesn't mean anything if they're now 10 year olds and don't remember anything that happened because their brains <laughs> and their cells have all reverted mm-hmm. versus versus literally me just simply being biologically a younger version of me in every way, except I've got all my memories and my, and my, my experiences and my muscle memory and everything. Is that a little bit like biologically what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's a quite a good way to kind of, yeah, bring it down into those kind of simpler terms. And I think something that I didn't mention kind of for time-wise is stem cells are really, really fascinating cells. Like iPSCs are amazing cells that can become any cell type. But one of the problems that some uh, researchers have found is if you turn them back into functional cells, um, they often don't resemble adult cells. They often resemble kind of immature or kind of fetal cells. And just like you said, they might not be they're functional, they kind of don't remember, don't know what they need to do to kind of carry out the correct job. A good example is a pancreatic cell, for example. If you go to an iPSC cell and then back to a pancreatic cell, these cells don't just make insulin, but they actually make all the hormones of the, pan- of the pancreas all at once. And so effectively, these cells are not very helpful uh, at carrying out their job. So potentially, our method is able to kind of prevent that problem because we don't lose that memory we keep that memory, but hopefully just rejuvenate the aging that has kind of surrounded the cell. So you're essentially, so when you're saying the, the cell, is, is this the difference between making a cell younger um, and the difference between giving the memory information from the experienced cell and passing it to a new version of the, like a younger version of a cell, since we're all shedding our, our cells all the time anyway, mm-hmm. um, like more like um, the, the cells them, the cells themselves, giving the information to a younger version cell. Is that kind of what you're talking about? So I guess that's the thing. At the moment, this is all um, the cells aren't. At this point, it's not looking at communication, but looking at the cells themselves. So intrinsically, these cells become younger versions of themselves. Um, this, I guess, also kind of links to the technology and when it, when this would be more most useful. So ideally, this would be more useful for cells that aren't being regularly shed from our bodies. Um, if you can imagine, these cells are from the dermis, so there's a, a deeper layer within the skin. So these cells are kind of are going to stay around for quite a while. 
So by rejuvenating them, that will have a kind of more long lasting effect. Um, I guess also another example is if we try moving our technology to other cell types. So for example, could we move to a kind of blood or hematopoietic stem cell, so a blood precursor? If you rejuvenate that, that would effectively mean all the cells that it produces would be younger versions of the cells that it would produce normally. Hopefully that makes more sense. Uh, but the communication is also another thing. Cells do talk to each other. And if you make a cell youthful, could it then talk to the cells around it and make them also youthful kind of by communicating? And that's something we haven't done yet. Um, you've got me thinking of those movies where someone young comes into like a, an old person's home and teaches them how to party. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this makes me wonder as well, could this potentially be used then to revert like say bone cells, like if you had a broken like, um, like shin bone, mm -hmm. if it could regenerate that, would it like regenerate the very bone itself so that it didn't look like it was broken? Because I, think, I believe a broken bone always shows signs that it was broken. Could this like revert that? Potentially. Um, I guess the thing is, for example, would does young bone show less scarring than old bone at healing? And if that is true, then potentially by putting youthful or rejuvenated cells back into that injury, you would be able to kind of reduce that kind of scarring effect. I think it's yeah, definitely something we are interested in looking at the applications of our method and which cell types this would be the most useful for. Effectively, this is a technology we think could be used for ex vivo rejuvenation. So taking cells out of an individual, rejuvenating them, and then putting them back for cell therapy applications. And if this does work in other cell types, the possibilities are endless. They, they truly are. My mind is actually blown from them because, um, oh, yeah, just, uh, Rather than have my mind blown with all the ideas, my next question is, um, let's say um, if you could like regenerate, re rejuvenate a person completely, right? Because right now you can't do anything like that. So I understand we're very in exploratory stages. Mm -hmm. But um, if you could do that, would that mean that this procedure would have to be done on every type of cell simultaneously? Um, so that, you know, it would be like, it wouldn't just be like, take this one shot mm -hmm. and everything will be made younger. It have to be, have to do, you know, blood cells, skin cells, bone cells, etc. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely a consideration in the kind of current form or kind of the way the current approaches are going. Um, one of the directions we're really wanting to explore is looking at the actual mechanisms behind rejuvenation. Um, so this reprogramming process primarily makes stem cells, but somewhere along the way, a, a set of genes or proteins is actually responsible for the rejuvenation that's occurring. We're really interested to see if these um, factors are actually activatable or independent from the kind of stem cell machinery. Um, is it possible you could just activate these kind of rejuvenation factors and then a cell would become younger. And if that would be the case, could you somehow activate them across the entire body simultaneously to make an entire body younger? This might not be possible. It's, it, it, there is the possibility that kind of uh, stem cell state and rejuvenation are somewhat linked, in which case you always have to kind of become a bit stem cell-like, even temporary to beget the rejuvenation. But there's always the possibility that these aren't linked at all, they're completely separate programs, just happen to activate at the same time. 
And in which case we might be able to activate the rejuvenation program to kind of rejuvenate, but without reprogramming at all. That's something that I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by. And that could be a way to kind of safely rejuvenate an entire body, but yeah, a long-term goal, but a, and a really interesting prospect. That definitely is. And, um, another question is if the, if, if, if the cells are made younger, um, are they still susceptible to any flaws that they were prone to when they were like aging? I think that's a very good question. So reprogramming doesn't change the genetics of a cell. So for example, if someone has kind of a genetic disposition to a disease, um, or potentially even if they have a, like a, acquired genetic damage, so potentially mutations that might have acquired due to maybe like UV exposure or kind of carcinogens in your diet, these aren't going to be repaired by reprogramming. And that's kind of something we have to acknowledge and um, maybe something we have to kind of find other ways to address. But yeah, something that the, these cells will rejuvenate some aspects, but not all aspects. And working out, is that enough? Or what things to look out for are definitely kind of things to consider. Fascinating. And uh, one last one uh, for, the, for a second. Um, what would what do you, I just was wondering, what do you think would happen if you used this rejuvenation stuff on actual cancer cells? Like, mm -hmm. what, would they, yeah, like, would they revert or uncancerify? <laughs> That's know. a really, really interesting question. I think it depends on how the cancer started and how progressed, how much the cancer's progressed. So there are certain cancers where the, the genetics or the genome hasn't changed. They're effectively genetically normal, but somehow the epigenome has changed. I think in those situations, it might be possible to kind of reverse the cancer potentially, and maybe transient reprogramming is a way to do that. And if you could correct the epigenome in those instances, the cell could become effectively a normal and healthy version of what it used to be. But yeah, in the case of a genetic a cancer where there's been a genetic alteration that probably wouldn't be the case but yeah there may be some cancers where this could be a way to kind of help to deal or reverse the process that is incredible and very exciting and i do have more questions but i want to let other people have a chance thank <laughs> yeah. you so much for You're indulging welcome. me yeah thank you so much i mean that was a fascinating work and my question from you is about the Yamanaka factors mm -hmm. and we know that the role of them, in, uh, I mean, uh, producing the oncogen mm -hmm. properties. So on your research, I mean, how you could get the control over the, I mean, these factors actually, as long as we are dealing with the, we are not dealing with the polyripotent, right? Properties in your research somehow but however we have a somatic cell and mm. we cannot deny that so mm -hmm. do you have any more i mean explanation around that i think that's definitely an important consideration and work we want to do in the future um so looking at the long-term consequences of our method do these cells stay normal uh, for long-term cultures for example or do they have a kind of predisposition to becoming cancer-like that's definitely important concern um also just looking at the kind of maybe single cell level as well, if there are kind of rare populations of cells that we don't see, 
So at the moment, our, our work doesn't suggest any indication for kind of oncogenesis or increased cancer risk, but these are bulk measurements which average everything out. So yeah, looking at the single cell level, doing long-term cultures, we might see there are rare populations and it's definitely something we have to consider because um, yeah, as you mentioned, these genes are oncogenes and there is definitely the risk for oncogenesis. But yeah, going forwards, it would be amazing if we could move beyond the LNAC effectors. If we can look at what's downstream, what they actually turn on that rejuvenate cells, could we activate them instead? And that could be a, a much safer approach to rejuvenation. rejuvenation. Yeah, very important. Thank you so much. I have another question in terms of um, just in terms of what it what it means to have a, a genome express things over um, over time, and um, in just in in terms of trying to model that kind of behavior, um, for example, have you? Have you thought if you wanted to introduce a gene with some CRISPR methodology, is there is there any understanding or you know at, at a hypothesis level that would guide where you would insert that gene if you mm -hmm. wanted it to trigger at a certain point in time, like the onset of different developmental phases, mm -hmm. or you know is is there is there really a somewhat of a modelable principle here in terms of um, st structure kinetics exposure changes to certain genes mm -hmm. and and how decoupled is that spatially like you, you, I think you were talking about if you could uh, in a sense asynchronously r um, reverse certain groups of genes um, and, mm -hmm. and and, and versus others. I mean, are there some general principles that could be modeled that should that are emerging here? I guess um, so. It's a sort of thing where I don't know if we want to necessarily do integrative techniques, for example, um, or if we just want to transiently express genes to cause changes. I think is probably the better long-term solution. But yeah, I, it, it's something to consider. Um, kind of stepwise progression of what things need to be activated and when is kind of an, an unknown. Um, we do need to kind of do more detailed analysis of what's going on during the kind of rejuvenation point of reprogramming, especially in a kind of multiomic and kind of single cell fashion. So we can work out what kind of progression of events actually has to occur and in which layers of the cell that has to occur. Does it have to occur in the accessibility first? Does it have to occur in the DNA methylation first? Does it occur in the transcription level first? I think, yeah, there's still a lot of unknowns regarding the kind of rejuvenation process. So we are hoping to characterize that in more detail in the future. And that's actually one of the projects we're working on at the moment, looking at a single cell level and in a multi-omic fashion. So looking at multiple aspects of a single cell at the same time, and that could shed light on what is the kind of stepwise approach you have to do to rejuvenate cells and which layers you have to target. And hopefully that answers your question a bit more. It, it does. And, and I knew by asking it, it's probably unanswerable. So the insights were, were wonderful. I wonder then um, also the role of the environment that those cells are placed in, you know, detection of external factors. 
in, in thinking in terms of differentiation and and cell type mm -hmm. um it, it, well, your your talk sort of indicates well there's an internal clock but mm. um there's also cues environmental cues from the tissue around it and the, and what the other cells are you know what factors they might be expressing is that do you have insights in the separation between its internal state mm. uh, versus the cues from the environment so that's yeah a really really interesting question the external cues are something that we do want to explore at the moment we so i guess to kind of to kind of shed light on the protocol because it's in vitro we have quite a lot of control over what the external environment contains so the cells uh, during the kind of reversion part of our protocol are effectively put back into the kind of same starting media that they were used to be in. So they are, are no longer being exposed to kind of the reprogramming media. Um, but a lot of those components are still somewhat undefined. So these cells are being grown in FBS, for example, and FBS is an uncharacterized um, media component. So there could be definitely external cues kind of or signals within this mixture that kind of helps to control or promote the cells reversing or returning to their starting identity. And it's, yeah, something we are interested in looking in a little bit more. Um, Cause yeah, as, I, we, as you said, you, it, there could be external factors and not just intrinsic factors that regulate this process. Um, I think one way to look into it though is if for example, you inhibited, for example, transcriptional persistence, or if you inhibited epigenetic memory and used the same protocol and they still went back that would be good evidence that external cues are more important because you've got rid of these two hypotheses for memory, but it still works. Um, and likewise, if you got rid of one and it doesn't go back, then it suggests that maybe it's not just extrinsic cues. But yeah, definitely, I think extrinsic cues are something to look into. Um, and with it being an in vitro system, we have a lot of control and we could potentially use alternative media conditions to explore what is actually needed and what's not. Thank you. Um, are there other people? I have oh, one more question. One more question. So, in terms of the interaction of different ages of, of cells, I suppose are, you've, I'm sure you've at least thought of mixing, you know, at different levels of um, the transient reprogramming. So, taking very early ones back and looking at, um, you know, constructs of, uh, you know, just how far you've taken them back to tease out whether the environmental cl clues um, are somewhat age dependent. In mm -hmm. sense, those mm -hmm. interactions. So mixing the, the very youthful cells with, you know, sort of halfway and does it affect the aging of either? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I will note that down. It's maybe something we might try out. <laughs> I had another, it was like a half question, but forgive me for kind of my brain going too sci-fi here, but I had the, the idea of um, being able to like, cl like clone something like your your liver or your kidney and then rejuvenate it to like a younger mm -hmm. version of itself. So you could get the, you could literally have your own organs mm -hmm. um, to like, you know, transplant back in, but younger versions. That's really Is cool. That that is part of our logic. At the moment, it's looking more, I guess, from a skin perspective. So for example, if you could create like a skin graft uh, in, in 
in culture uh, using rejuvenated cells from yourself, you could then apply that to yourself without the risk of rejection. But yeah, definitely that'd be amazing if we could combine. And there, yeah, there's been so many advances in kind of the kind of regeneration field where people have been looking at generating organ organoid structures or even organs or artificial organs. And yeah, applying our technique to those situations could be a way to kind of put younger versions of your own organs back, which could be really, really cool. Oh, I've got more to ask, but somebody else can go first if they want to. Uh, just a really quick one. I'm sorry about the background noise on an airport, but um, really interesting. I read some of the paper and uh, I have been um, exposed to some of the research around, not particularly the same necessarily, but maybe you see a link around this. I'm thinking about mechanism of action when, for instance, there are some studies about uh, changing um, the brain fluids in mice and mm -hmm. where they were able to see uh, rejuvenation in a sense of when they were looking at dementia, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. that you were able to kind of go back on dementia. Um, I think they were saying like 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, uh, also, there's similar kinds of effects with, um, with um, um, microbiome mm -hmm. in the gut and also with platelet-rich plasma in bone transplants with hip transplantations. So it seems to me that, you know, basically using it, it, with the mice, just to make, make, make it clear, and with the mice you were using, they were using a younger uh, 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 mouse uh, brain fluids and mm. inserting into older mice. And they would see uh, that their memory was better going through yeah, these yeah. mazes with, um, with uh, I think if I remember correctly, it was healthy individuals with microbiomes, and that's basically therapy right now, what I understood. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also a therapy when it comes to bone transplants. I don't know if these are interlinked in some way. I'm kind of more on the practical side because I've worked with some companies around these things. Yeah, I think that's really, really fascinating. There are so many of these interventions that you've highlighted really nicely that uh, elicited rejuvenation uh, one thing we're really interested in looking at is, yeah, the overlap uh, and if there is kind of conserved pathways that are going on that may actually be responsible for the rejuvenation in, in all these scenarios. Um, it's still work we are working on, but yeah, very interesting idea. And could it be there is only one rejuvenation program, but all these different interventions activate it in maybe different ways? Um, a really interesting idea and yeah, definitely something to we're considering. Does anyone else have any before I, I go for more? <laughs> uh, Jake, ha I think, has a question. Uh, welcome, Jake. Hi there. I was just looking for the information. We, You guys did a room on uh, concentrations of, of um, oh, I can't remember the name of the plant, on worms, on little tiny worms that, that extended their life. Uh, I, I just popped in and, and oh, I, yes. I kind of... <laughs> is that is that this is what this is talking about, or or are those two studies uh, similar to this? Well, it's different. Um, I'm sorry, um, Dr. Gill. Um, if I t if we had the guest speaker here before that uh, used a um, compound, <clears throat> a chemical f extracted from a plant that rejuvenated C. elegans. <clears throat> oh, cool. Or 
I think it increased the lifespan around 30%. And that cur the curious thing about it was that it increased a uh, fat in the C. elegans. So the fat ones basically, mm -hmm. have, they had an increased lifespan. Um, but uh, no, this is a different approach. This is more looking at the gene expression level and then reprogram the gene expression level to basically rejuvenate um, the cells. It's, it's a more profound work because you actually look at the mechanisms, um, underlying mechanisms of aging and, and address that. So um, yeah, but thank you for bringing that up. It would be interesting to see for you to run, you know, um, this um, multi-omic approach on these C. elegans and see uh, what is happening and why, why this drug works and why yeah, the, cool. the, the interesting thing is when they deleted basically the fat um, increasing um, mm. factor, <laughs> it, it they, they, the rejuvenating effect was not there. So apparently this fat component uh, was important in that case. That is really interesting. And I guess, yeah, it's linking it, maybe trying to link it to our work is like the metabolics or the metabolome is yeah, definitely another layer oh, that's really interesting and can play a role in how things work. And yeah, it would be cool to see if maybe there's overlap with our work. It's, yeah, something we haven't done ourselves, but we are hoping to look at the metabolome and how that is affected by MPTR. And then there may be actual connections potentially. Yeah, I'll send you the paper. Uh, it's, it's pretty recent research. He was here, I don't know, around two months ago, Jake. I yeah, think. I think about two months ago. If yeah. you could send me that paperwork too, I seem to have lost it. I I thought I I put a notepad for it, but yeah. uh, I'm notorious for accidentally deleting things. Yeah, <laughs> let me let me find it and then I'll I'll share it with both of you. Thank you for bringing that up, Jake. Another thing, real quick, there was also you had spoken. I believe there was a different room about uh, cellular rejuvenation, where you remember the first cloned sheep and, and its child uh, sort of aged quicker and now they have they have figured a way that the cell can rejuvenate itself completely instead of uh, like it is a clone it comes out older is is that something that could be integrated into this study I guess that's actually, we're using technology very similar to Dolly the Sheep effectively. So where our work, it works on iPSC reprogramming, um, which I guess is the kind of, it did follow on from the somatic cell nuclear transfer that Dolly the Sheep was based on. Um, so yeah, our work, uh, just to kind of briefly mention, yeah, harnesses transient reprogramming. So we're not going all the way to the kind of pluripotent iPSC state, but going kind of halfway and this seems to kind of elucidate some of the rejuvenation that occurs during reprogramming, but keeps the starting cell type. So yeah, the mechanisms that play kind of in that study probably are very similar to the ones that are occurring in our work as well. And yeah, we're very cool to see the overlaps. Does anyone else have anything before I Bother the doctor again for a minute. Uh, yeah, I think Prakash uh, joined the stage. Welcome, Prakash. 
Hi, I thank you. Uh, thank you, Katrina. Thank you, Dr. Jildich. Uh, this is a wonderful study. You mentioned a couple of times about uh, genetic diseases and uh, potential application. Uh, one, one particular disease that came up to my mind is uh, SCA, which is known as spinocerebellar ataxia, especially the type 2, which mm -hmm. is caused by the mutation. Uh, it's actually a repeat of uh, CAG. And most of the, I mean, some of the cell, uh, stem cell companies are actually working on that. Do you, do you think, uh, uh, I mean, this can be extrapolated or do you see any translational application for such uh, genetic diseases or any other specific diseases? I think one thing we are still working on is looking at how our method changes the genetics um, of a cell. Um, it's work that we actually recently started looking at. So we've been looking at the, the mutation load of cells after uh, transient reprogramming, so doing um, variant calling and looking at the, all the variants. And it's, yeah, still work is ongoing. Um, but yeah, it's, there's, um, the initial work seems to suggest that unfortunately variants don't really change. And I guess that's not too surprising because uh, we haven't really got a, a template to correct um, these mutations for. With transient reprogramming, the cells are intrinsically uh, rejuvenating the epigenome, the transcriptome, but to kind of repair the um, genetic damage, it's going to be a, a more a difficult task because there isn't a, a, a perfect template to repair from. Um, but yeah, this work is still ongoing and um, we are trying to see what the mutation signatures are and if there are actually improvements. But yeah, still early days for this work, unfortunately. Wonderful. The other possibility is also on the eye genetic mm -hmm. diseases, especially the inherited uh, retinal disorders, mm -hmm. so that the treat treatment can be localized instead of uh, you know genetic diseases that affects the entire system. Mm -hmm. So perhaps mm -hmm. IRD could be another potential target. Okay, cool. Thanks for your suggestions. That's very helpful. Does anyone else have a question? Go ahead, okay. Tim. Okay, good. Hello again, Doctor. Um, uh, okay, in your paper, you mentioned optimal time windows uh, for rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. um, is that, are you talking about with that, um, is that optimal for the cell itself or would that be for how old like the, the person would be the cells came or the, 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 the being that the cells came from mm. or what's of that? So yeah, that's a, a very good question. Um, and it's probably going to be answered with a couple more questions, <laughs> unfortunately. But the first part is um, when I was talking about optimal time windows, this is referring to how long to transient reprogram for. So how long do we switch on these reprogramming genes and yeah, when do we turn them off? So um, kind of a bit counterintuitively, just leaving them on for longer isn't always the best solution. It's, there seems to be a case where if you switch on for too long um, and let the cells then turn it off and then go back, it actually doesn't rejuvenate as much. It's a little bit of a, a puzzle we're trying to work out why this is the case, but it could be that maybe cells actually start to struggle to return back to their starting cell type if they have been reprogrammed for too long. And if they, 
in, the, in this struggle, they may actually re-age um, and therefore lose this rejuvenation that they actually uh, had during the reprogramming part of the protocol. So maybe, yeah, there is an optimal window where just enough reprogramming lets you actually still go back without too much, prob too much problem um, and therefore you can kind of keep that rejuvenation you got from reprogramming. But yeah, linking it to the other two questions you had are very, very, very good questions. Um, would this be the same for other cell types? And that is still very much an, an, an open question. Um, we are hoping to look in other cell types, but I think, yeah, as you mentioned, if there are optimal windows for different cell types, we'd have to do, again, looking at multiple lenses of reprogramming uh, in different cell types to work out what the optimal is in each case. Potentially, there might be some rules we can learn where maybe certain cell types have certain or certain groups of cell types have certain optimal windows and others have other optimal windows. Or it could be just a blanket. Everything has the exact same optimal window, but we don't know that just yet. And then your final question or like leads to another question is the age of the, the person and um, that you get the cells from. And does that produce its own kind of optimum? That is still very much unknown and it will be very, very exciting to see what is the effects of transient reprogramming in different aged cells? If you start off with cells from a 70-year-old versus 50-year-old cells, do you still see the same amount of rejuvenation? Do you see less? Do you actually see more? Um, is another possibility. So yeah, these are all things that we hope to look at in the future. That's, that's an incredible answer. Thank you so much. And it made me think of another one there that when you talk about um, counterintuitively, you can't just re regenerate them back. Um, now, please forgive me if this is like a, a simple off, off the, the cuff thought here, but um, are the cells perhaps showing some kind of display of stress or something to indicate that the cells aren't constructed to rejuvenate and we're making them do that? Or are they okay with that? It's just some other factor. Uh, does my question make sense? Yep, that's a really, 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 really good question, actually. And something that we have been trying to look into, are there certain cells that can rejuvenate and are there certain cells that can't rejuvenate? Um, it's still something that we haven't um, got an answer just yet to. Um, we actually were interested from the perspective of does rejuvenation actually occur or is it the case that we're just enriching for the younger cells? So if you imagine you take a sample of cells from an individual, what's becoming a little bit, what's being suggested by the literature and recent papers is that not all the cells in your tissues are the exact same age. Some of our cells in our tissues appear to be younger and some appear to be older, but they all average out to produce our age. Um, so that was really quite an interesting observation and, and it, made up, it made us question when we do transient reprogramming, are we actually rejuvenating cells or are we just kind of enriching the ones that were younger to begin with? Um, uh, we have started moving into the kind of the single cell kind of analysis and that doesn't seem to be the case, which is very exciting. Um, we actually are rejuvenating cells, but the, the question of are some more equipped or better or in a better state to kind of re rejuvenate, that's something we haven't done. And yeah, really good, really, really good thought. Something we could add to the list to look into. Thank you. Um, and another thing then, since you mentioned about the chronic it, you know how a person's like, what, like age clock or whatever isn't mm. necessarily their, their, you know, they could be 30, but like parts of them could 
appear to be in sort of 40 if they ate badly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, is that then kind of indicating that parts of a person's body could be older? Like, you know, I could have skin five years younger, but mm-hmm. a liver 10 years older, for instance, something like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And um, for example, Morgan Levine's work, her group has suggested that, yeah, we can actually build clocks that can predict the age of different organ systems in our body. Um, And that I think is a really interesting idea that we might be able to like, that different parts of our body do age at different rates. And we might actually be able to measure that now. Um, So yeah, a lot of interesting work uh, is happening right now. So we'd encourage you to look maybe into those groups if you're interested. Considering the fact that we've already got these um, Apple watches that monitor your heart rate and the breathing <laughs> yeah. and steps, you could want to say like my, my heart's like aging slower than my kidneys. <laughs> that would be <laughs> incredibly interesting. And do you see this, because this is like so much potential here, do you see this work being the core work of maybe a lot of branching studies beyond this? Because it sounds like there's a lot of potential in different directions here. So I, yeah, I, I just want to say that the, the transient reprogramming space is a very hot field right now. And a lot of groups are also working on the same problem or the same kind of a, a similar approaches. Um, so yeah, lots of groups have tackled the same question, but in different ways. So potentially by using um, not all the reprogramming factors, just using a subset or potentially reprogramming for shorter lengths of time, but then doing it multiple times in a row. Um, so yeah, it's a very hot field with a lot of people working and using very different approaches, but with the same kind of overall goal of rejuvenation. So I think, yeah, it, it, it just seems to be growing this field as well, which is very exciting. I, uh, there's been a lot of really interesting papers recently, if you just search transient reprogramming. Um, so I, I, I only imagine it to get more exciting as time goes on. Uh, yeah, thank you for all um, answering all this question. Do you have time for a few more questions that came up in the room chat and then Leah uh, joined the stage. Is that okay for you? Because yeah, that's, that's no problem. Okay, great. So um, Lady um, Ninja, she asked, uh, I have Stargardt's disease. What procedure could help me? Like, is this procedure something that could help her? I'm, I'm not sure if you know the answer. I'm unfortunately not sure what Stargardt's disease is. If this is something where it has an age component, then potentially this procedure could be useful. I think from our point of view, we're really interested in looking at diseases with like an age component. So for example, if this is a disease that increases with risk with age, I think this is where this technique could really shine. Um, But again, if this is something where, for example, a cell cell therapy would be also applicable. um, I think again, a more functional cell therapy is always going to be more useful than a less functional cell therapy. So I think there are kind of two avenues. So if that is a disease where those either of those two could apply, potentially it could be a useful therapy in that case. Great, thank you. And then uh, Leslie Dolling um, asked, uh, I would be interested if you can shed light on if environmental triggers affect cells to rejuvenate due to spikes in um, estrogen levels um, and so on. So. Are there mm-hmm. specific triggers that are, you know, specially um, stressful for the cells? I think um, looking at how the environment, and in particular, like 
our actual environment, not just the tissue environment, affects cells and could be used to trigger rejuvenation is a really interesting question. And I think in the long term is probably going to be a direction we want to move to. Um, you could imagine, always, at the moment, our technique is very hands-on, very lab-based, using genetic manipulation. But in the future, we would definitely want to move to a more kind of pharmaceutical approach where we would introduce either a drug or maybe even if you could have like a diet that tailors with certain nutrients, is there a way to kind of activate the same rejuvenation program? At the moment, it's still very much an unknown, but a lot of these kind of systems do interlink and it would be interesting to see if there is a way to environmentally uh, promote a rejuvenation event. Um, so yeah, very interesting question and hopefully in the future we might be able to answer that. Great, thank you so much. Uh, and then Leah, uh, you have a question? Welcome to the stage. I do, thank you so much. I was just curious, uh, when you say programming, are you talking about like protein programming, like Cas9 and CRISPR, or is this um, a different technique? I guess I'm kind of curious if this is something that's been made possible because of, um, of the CRISPR um, discovery, mm -hmm. but I'm just curious about the connection and not how is it different? So reprogramming can be done in quite a lot of different ways. I guess we call it reprogramming because it is a, a, a kind of cell type change. So effectively changing the program of a cell. Um, there are many ways to, in, to induce this process. So um, traditionally this has been done using virus-based approaches or so introducing genes that integrate into our DNA. Um, but alternatively, you can use mRNA and transfect that into a cell and that's a transient approach. Um, CRISPR approaches can also work as well, so you can use CRISPR to introduce new copies of the reprogramming genes or to activate the ones that are already there. So um, yeah, CRISPR can definitely be used with reprogramming, but yeah, the method itself is called reprogramming because it's affecting the cell type. Thank you. Uh, just to recap, you said uh, CRISPR, mRNA, what was the first one? The transient one? Uh, so mRNA is a transient one, but the kind of initial ones were, were virus-based. Oh, that's right, virus-based, so got it. Ret retrovirus or lentivirus-based, usually. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, um, I have actually a quite question that is maybe, you know, a little bit um, away from your field, but it kind of isn't because you know, I'm a neuroscientist. I worked, uh, you know, a lot of years in research related to mental health disorders, and and um, I I did a study, and there are now various studies, um, like actually a lot of of papers now showing that um, the epi um, gen that epigenetic mechanisms are really um, involved in long-term memory and then also in mental health disorders uh, because plasticity, synaptic plasticity, um, which is always the underlying mechanism of everything, mm -hmm. um, uses uh, epigenetic mechanisms. So I think uh, your approach could also uh, fix um, some uh, mental health disorders where the brain is basically stuck in and doesn't um, use um, these mechanisms appropriately anymore mm. and it's kind of stuck so it's kind of an well, you could say it's maybe kind of an early onset aging where mm -hmm. you kind of the cells 
don't um, don't update their um, uh, their plasticity to the actual environment. Let's say PTSD, um, the cells don't learn, relearn that it's safe now. Uh, mm -hmm. So they are kind of stuck and don't. Um, so I think this would be really interesting. The question is just how we would do that because it's in the brain. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that, that's um, re really interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's kind of going back to almost the roots of why we got fascinated in this question to begin with. Yeah, the epigenome is inherently a uh, kind of reversible um, layer of regulation. It can be, it's dynamic, it can change, but it also can be reverted back to a kind of youthful or healthy state. Um, and yeah, potentially yeah, by learning the mechanisms that govern Kind of epigenetic rejuvenation during reprogramming we might be able to apply those also to the kind of the the, the problematic changes that occur um in the brain um yeah as for how to kind of get to those cells in a safe way that would be something to definitely think about we don't want to be changing cell type definitely in the brain because that could lead to loss of synapses and those connections um yeah potentially by le learning and understanding what governs the epigenetic rejuvenation and reprogramming, we might be able to activate that in a way that doesn't affect the kind of architecture, but does help the cells to kind of regain that epigenetic kind of useful yeah. or healthy plasticity. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that I read yesterday, actually quite coincidentally, um, that they now found uh, when therapies actually work, which is not in a very high percentage in a in very severe cases right where we would maybe use this approach like a more invasive approach um where the few that therapy actually helps they then looked at the epigenetic like methylation levels in um genes involved in like dopamine and mm -hmm. you know all uh, cortisol uh, cortisol is highly involved in ptsd mm -hmm. the 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 epigenetic um markers were changed back to compare to a wild type type of um level so where you know no ptsd what, mm -hmm. which which is really interesting so um yeah which points again that this epigenetic mechanisms are really important and if people are really stuck um to not being able to reverse that or the neurons are stuck that this would be a really big uh improvement in you know in very severe cases so mm -hmm. yeah i think it would be <laughs> would be really interesting maybe well the problem is with neurons that let's say you um harvest some cells and differentiate them yeah, well no uh maybe you harvest some cells and get them rejuvenated in the dish in the lab and inject them again mm -hmm, would mm -hmm. be interesting to see maybe in an animal model if it would affect the that brain region the system mm. or if they would just get rejected and you know not getting back into the network again it would be interesting to see definitely yeah and there are lots of different cell types in the brain so we could look at not just neurons but also the kind of supporting cells and see if helping those could help to 
maybe restore the yeah, neurons themselves. The yeah, the glia, the astrocytes. Yeah, I was going to astrocytes, <laughs> <And those> right. <laughs> probably integrate very well in the network. Mm. You know, yeah, it's they, a really interesting idea. Issue. Yeah, so, yeah, if you have any collaboration, like not with me, because I'm actually right now in, in, in uh, printing organ stuff with stem cells, but maybe you have a lab close by. I think Robin Franklin's group could be an interesting one. So he's also in Cambridge and he works with, um, in particular, yeah, the glial cells. And yeah, this could be an interesting, I was actually reading one of his papers recently where they looked at kind of rejuvenating the glial cells. So maybe this is a, a collaboration we should start. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, and let us know. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> I'm certainly, yeah, certainly anything astrocytes. And I was going to ask in the, you know, in the case of astrocytes that have these processes grown uh, during, you know, applying the Yamanoka factors to them in the rejuvenation, uh, does, do you, would you see the changes in morphology? Would they shed some of those processes and, and begin growing new ones? Or is it, um, do they in essence have less methylation patterns, but they still preserving those the processes or the morphology that they've grown? I think, so I'm trying to remember Robin Franklin's work. I think he published, his group published a paper recently where they looked at the Yamanaka factors being expressed in oligodendrocytes. Um, and I think they actually produced more processes compared to if they didn't do the intervention. So it looks like they can kind of assist um, in the kind of healthy function of these cells and kind of make them make more processes to actually support the, the neurons. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I hope it will work. No, it would be very, like, if that would work, we could really treat very severe cases of different uh, mental health disorders. Um, that would mm -hmm. be, be amazing. So, uh, Jamie, I think you had another question, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Yeah, no absolutely. We've taken, we've taken so much of your time. Um, I had this one other question. Um, I actually found this article just only like 20 minutes before this talk, in fact, so I wish I had time to read it. But it was discussing how um, understanding how oxygen sensing contributes to age related phenotypes. And I wondered, are you familiar with that about like oxygen like breathing and stuff causing like being a factor in aging and the cells and everything? Um, I'm not super familiar with it necessarily, but the, yeah, the metabolism, especially like oxidative metabolism is something that we are interested in looking at. And there, it is known that during reprogramming, there are quite dramatic changes in how cells kind of switch their metabolism. So cells will go temporarily into a glycolytic state. So they'll go from oxidative phosphorylation to glycolytic and then uh, with transient reprogramming, they'll switch back to oxidative phosphorylation. So, it, yeah, there's definitely the, the premise that if they are undergoing such dramatic changes in how they process oxygen and process, make energy, that there could be a link there. Would it be helpful for us to paste a link and you have a look at it? Or, um, Katerina, would that be possible? Oh yeah, we can send it in the back channel. Um, oh sure, sure, yeah, yeah. If you're if you're curious, because I can give you the article. Um, because I was wondering if that would be any kind of factor, but I didn't have a chance to have a good look at it. Thank you very, very much for your time. No problem. 
Um, Via, you had the more general question. Um, um, about, do you want to ask the, the question you shared in the room chat, Via, or? Thank you. I it was. It, I don't think it's important enough to take up space in the conversation. I was just curious when you guys mentioned about um, trying to reach the brain cells uh, safely, and you know, you said you didn't want to um, change the cell type. I didn't even know that was possible. So I was like, wait, is that a thing now? But that's okay. I look. I can look it up. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> no, no. I think it's a, an important question. Like we don't want to do transient reprogramming maybe directly in the brain because there is the the risk that even if the cells temporarily lose their cell type, they could lose all the important connections they once had. Um, effectively, like your brain could just de-differentiate, lose all the important connections, and even if it re-differentiated, it wouldn't be in the correct kind of network. Um, so yeah, it's definitely an important consideration to kind of, at least for the neurons, avoid cell type changes, but potentially for the supporting cells, that might not be as problematic. Well, it does sort of suggest um you know, tar targeting staged release type uh, delivery mechanisms for uh, mm. Yamamoto factors in the sense that, you know, if the, it, it, you know, it, it would have to enter certain cell types to, you know, the layer by layer peel off and ultimately deliver the factors. But if you could target things like astrocytes uh, in a developing brain, that would be really fascinating experiments to do, you know, say mm -hmm. in mice first, obviously, but, um, you could selectively turn back the clock on cells in place. Even with yeah, that would be very cool. And I guess maybe using uh, maybe specific promoters that will only activate in certain cell types could be a way to work in that direction. Um, yeah, thank you so much for, um, yeah, for all the questions <clears throat> that everyone had and um, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Gill, uh, for sharing so much time with us and your research with us. It's really interesting, and I'm really looking forward to what you're going to do next. And, no problem. Uh, <laughs> I very much hope you can come back and tell us about it as well. Please. I would love to. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. And yeah, we wish you all the luck and all the funding for your research. It's totally egoistic. It's not like altruistic. The way you <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, yeah, we wish you all the best and hopefully come back. And thank you everyone for joining our discussion here. And um, yeah, enjoy your weekend. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you, thank you very much, Doctor. And oh, one last thing, this is more of a playful thing. It's not even a question, but um, a lot of your stuff you've talked about, especially with changing cell types and everything, it really does, I don't know if this is familiar with you, but like like a Doctor Who type regeneration with everything <laughs> sort of like reshaping and restructuring. It just made me think of that. Um, just made me laugh. But, but thank you so, so much. I've got that time. image in my head as well now. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much. Great. Um, yeah, so uh, if you like, um, discussions like this everyone follow the science society and uh, we'll have actually later today at 9 p.m. EST uh, Dr. Atta joining us from Japan and how he simulates basically 
a time machine to study ancestor galaxy life cycles and so basically going back in time uh, how our universe functioned um uh, way way back so <laughs> yeah and uh thank you so much dr gill again and uh, enjoy the rest of your day morning evening wherever you are and um I hope I hear you all back soon. And Dr. Gill, I hope we'll have you back one day. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Have a good day. Thank you very Take much. Take care, everybody. See you later. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone. <laughs>